Ready? Mm-hmm. Let's do it. Let's do it. Fire it up. Fire it up. This episode's fire. Can you just say it's good and then it becomes good? It seems to be a strategy for uh, popular criticism. Yeah, I mean, that's what Donald Trump, how he won the election. Yeah. He's like, I'm the best. And people are like, okay. Yeah. Charisma. Charisma goes a long way. Yeah. All right. Let's begin. How's it going? I'm okay. I'm a little sore today. Why? I don't know why. I think it's just age. I know why. Let me tell you why. Because on the weekend, you used your stairs. <laughs> Actually, I was able to avoid the stairs this weekend. Like a responsible wheelie. I have been doing my little walk like around the areas of my house where I can hold on to things. You have like a, an obstacle course through your kitchen? Yeah, like a little Mission Impossible thing I can do around my island. When you're walking, do you listen to music that like pumps you up? If I'm walking in my walker, yeah. If I have a heart rate above like 120, then yeah, I listen to music. But if I'm just walking to keep circulation going, then I don't really need stimulation that way. I'll put on like a video essay. Oh God, so you're trying to put yourself to sleep. No, no, like a cool video essay about media that I enjoy, not like like Humanities 101 or something. Uh, okay, okay, okay. Like breaking down why a movie was good? Uh, lately, it's been a lot of video games. What's your go-to pump-up song? Maybe it's not a song, but what's your thing? You know the song um, Electric Feel by MGMT? Yeah. I love that song. Electric Feel. Yeah, that one. Yeah, it's great. That wasn't a very good rendition, to be honest. That was I just played the song actually. <laughs> All right, I've never heard the original version apparently. Yeah, no, you always get that cover where it's like well produced and sounds good. Yeah, yeah. That's the one you listen to. You have to listen to the original raw sitting at a campfire. I thought you were gonna say like coffee shop or like shitty local bar. It's like the acoustic version without the acoustic version. (laughs) Without the acoustics. It's just a guy at a picnic on his own. Yeah, yeah. He did it. He's just by himself. Yeah, he's just in a park thinking that this is what's going to bring the girls over. Right, hoping to draw a crowd, yeah. Yeah. So you did your your stair climbing. Uh, What are you asking me? What I did this weekend? Or why I'm sore? Yeah, I'm just trying to get the the update. You know, the people want to know. I had a fun weekend. Like, I actually left the house this weekend. Uh, again, for the second time, two weekends in a row. Yeah. Yeah, so I'm actually starting to see people and behave like a, like a social human being, which is fun. Yeah. I'm getting, like, weird bouts of anxiety, and I, I want to be forthright about that in case there's some, some humor we can mine from it or like some therapeutic value and just stating it outright. But like I used to have some social anxiety in in high school, like the very prospect of entering into a conversation with certain kinds of people would make me nervous. and I'd become overly self-conscious. And that's starting to happen uh, again post-COVID. Like I'm like, I'm nervous about the, the fountain of possible conversational topics running dry and then like just having to sit in silence with people. The odd thing is, is that like, these are people that I've sat in silence with before who don't take me seriously all moments of the day. And 
can make, you know, amusement out of nothing. And yet for some reason I'm like worried about, I, I, I don't know. It Talking to people is harder than it used to be. Well, because you haven't done it in forever, right? Yeah, I suppose. Isn't that probably it? Like, because you, well, you and everyone else was locked up for a year and more. And you're just like, you're out of practice. Conversation is something that you, it might come more naturally to some people, but I still think it's something you have to practice. Yeah, it's definitely, it's definitely a muscle that needs regular exercise. Was it bad? Like, were you just like mid conversation? Like, so how was your? <laughs> no, like there were some people at the part at the party that I went to, and I shouldn't call it a party because it was a small gathering. But were there more than two wheelchairs? Because that's always a party. No, I've I've never I haven't had the more than two wheelchair scenario in a long time. Usually, my sister's in crutches. You notice though, anytime. A stranger or not like an able-bodied person sees two wheelchairs, maybe three, in the same space. Oh my They're god. Like, oh, it's a party. Yeah, or oh traffic jam. And you're just like, I'm at the bus stop. Yeah. It's like they've come across a gaggle of school children and they have to like say something pithy and upbeat. Yeah. And we're not school children, you jerk. Like go to Starbucks and fuck off. Don't run me over in that thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or the line that I that get, happens to me all the time when I'm running around with a thermos. Like I'll have uh, people um, from my workplace who are like, "Hey, you better not be drinking and driving." Yeah. Oh my god, fuck off. And then often it turns into, uh, "Wait, actually, can you?" And then it becomes a fun conversation, though. Right. Yeah. Like they think it's like kind of cute. The idea, like. The same thing as like a child with a beer. You know those pictures of babies when they pass out and then like someone will put a beer beside them and it'll look like they're, they they drank themselves to sleep? Yeah. That's how I feel some people look at wheelies because that's why they make engine noises when we drive past them sometimes. And it's never consensually and it's never funny and I never try to positively reinforce it, but they just do it. It's like an unwill... It's like it, it comes out of them like... Uh, unwillingly almost well i think it's just like it's an obvious joke i'm sure they all think it's the first time it's been made yeah i think every group of people probably hears the same few lines over and over again we probably do it to other people i may i'm I'm sure we do yeah because we're just as liable to be as biased as an able-bodied person but toward a different minority experience i suppose yeah like a tall person like wow did you ever play basketball uh hi but i mean i i fucking it's so annoying like i want to yell at people who do that you also get the Oh, are you going to put some underglow and spinners on that thing? Yeah. Are you going to fucking put some NOS in your power chair? Are you going to supersize it somehow? Some of it's just curiosity, though. Like, people will will be like, how fast does it go? Yeah. And I get that question every time I meet a new person. Yeah. But I get it. Like, uh, you know, you don't see a wheelchair very often, and you you're not in a conversation with someone in a wheelchair. So it's something that maybe you've wondered and now is your final chance to ask. I guess. There's always a part of me that really wants to make those conversations uncomfortable. Really? Like, oh, it doesn't go very fast, but it's eight inches and it's thick. 
I've used that joke before because, like, my chair can elevate. Oh, yeah. And to be like, wow, how high does that go? And I'm like, eight inches. Wait, what are we talking about? <laughs> it's like, oh, it depends on present company. Let's see how the conversation goes first. <laughs> oh, you'll have to buy me dinner and find out. <laughs> I understand that everyone needs icebreakers and you should... And if you care about an able-bodied person and you want to invite them into your inner life, then you have to like ease them into it. And part of that is this whole like ritual of like shitty jokes that you have to work your way through. But it's now that I'm in my 30s and I've done that like 27,000 times with every person that I've grown close to over the years. Like I'm just, I don't want to do it anymore. It's like an emotional labor that I just, I'm done with. (laughs) Yeah, I I go, I, I have some friends that you know who I hang out with a lot here, and they have birds. Oh, yeah. And every time we go out in public together, you get the same questions over and over again, like dozens of times per day. Uh, what do they eat? How long do they live? I can't believe you just let them out like that. But the funny thing is, these are all the same things that they're thinking about us, too. Yeah. Your friend's like, are you talking about my bird or Tony? <laughs> it's like for the first time, I actually kind of love that the birds are bringing flocks of people to talk to uh-huh. because they're looking at them instead of me now. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You're not the you're not the main attraction. Because usually kids walk by and they just start staring at me like what how how, who where did that how did where did you and then you see a bird yeah and then immediately you're like oh okay i care about the bird but it's funny because it's literally the same set of questions what do they eat how long do they live how can you let them outside like this that's cool that you just take them places with you yeah aren't you worried they're just gonna leave when you're not looking (laughs) Can you can you can you actually bring that on public transportation? I don't think so. Yeah, what do you feed them? Yeah, can we try feeding them? Do, do they speak? <laughs> yeah, what can they say? <laughs> when do they go to bed? Are they smart? I we've probably talked about this before, but like one like sort of responsibility of being disabled that I kind of resent. I don't know if this is a theme of today's conversation, but um, I used to work like in a movie theater in high school for like two or three years. I mean, I already knew that, but it's obviously like, yeah, I mean, it's clear that that's what I did. What what was the job interview? Like what's your favorite movie? And you're yeah. Like, and then I just spoke for 90 minutes and they're like, all right, we'll hire you if you leave. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, actually, yeah, I remember like going to the Ontario March of Dimes for like, for job interview coaching and how to curate your your resume if you have a physical disability and we did a mock interview and the guys like yeah you don't you actually don't have to talk that much you you can <laughs> yeah yeah he actually said that to me really and this was like pre that job or pre, like later in your life this was for that job i was like a 17 at the time that's amazing yeah it was pretty funny Anyway, so one responsibility that I sort wait, of... Wait, wait, sorry, sorry, sorry. I want, I'm just a little stuck on this. Maybe I've already asked you this. What uh-huh. did you do there? At the movie theater, I just tore tickets and told people what theater to go to. Yeah, I think we did talk about this because I probably made the same joke about like people just being like, do you want me to do it for you? Yeah, they did. 
I already felt self-conscious that that was basically the only thing they wanted me to do because that job also came with other responsibilities. You were supposed to sweep theaters and like, and like clean various parts of the, of the venue throughout the night. Um, I was just absolved of those responsibilities. Like they just parked me there and I took tickets and I wrote, I was there for like grade 12 and for my leap year. So I, I, I would write my, my math questions like proofs on the back of the nightly schedule and I would just like work on them. So I, I thought I was a little like cinema will hunting. Yeah. I was just going to make the same. Yeah. And I should stress, like I wasn't an exceptional math student at all. I just, but that's not, not entirely your fault. You're not able to reach a chalkboard, right? I'm not, I've never written on a chalkboard. Have you? Yeah. So that's a huge disadvantage. Right. Just just for the whole aesthetic of genius that movies uh, put across. Yeah, I don't think you can be a genius math hero without being able to write on a chalkboard. You specifically have to be able to use a Sharpie on a window or like a glass pane of some kind. Yeah. And you have to be like writing in like a caffeinated or drug induced fervor. And it's usually like a like a theorem, like like Euler's theorem misapplied but you know because it looks very mathy and at some point you have to stand on like a table or some object that's higher than everyone else and you're not able to do that either so right right at the gate you're destined to be terrible at math i i would agree yeah those are the basic tenets of of math um acuity okay so sorry continue your story I'm just assuming this has happened to you a hundred million times, but you are traveling in public, usually in the middle of going somewhere, or maybe you're like in, at a patio or something, and a parent will will uh, walk by you with a young child, and the child will react to you in real time and look to their parent and like pose a question why is that young man in a wheelchair? And then the parent will be like, I don't know, Timmy. You should ask him. And then like, then both the parent and the child like lock eyes with you. And suddenly you're, you're expected to be able to explain your disability to a small uh, creature. And it's like, creature. it's kind of terrifying. I actually prefer when someone's cool to ask. It's way better to me to ask. That's why I have a lot of patience for someone who's like, how fast does your chair go? I get it. You don't know how fast my chair goes. It's the same thing. You've never seen a parrot in the wild. So, of course, you want to know how much it eats and how long it lives for. What frustrates me is when either the parent's like, quiet, that's rude. And then they keep walking. Like, don't ask questions. Don't be curious. Don't try to get to know someone. That drives me nuts. The second thing that really drives me nuts is when people engage in conversation without engaging in conversation. Like when they talk to someone, this happens so often in like elevators where someone's like, wow, cold day. They're talking to the person they're with, but they're saying it loud enough to try to include you in the conversation. But they're not directly looking at you or addressing you. They're just saying it, and then you're in this position like, do I jump in because I think that's what they want me to do, or do I not because I know that's what they want me to do, but I just want them to address me normally. And so in that situation, when the kid is like, hey, what is this? And then the parent goes, (laughs) I don't know, why don't you ask? 
<laughs> what is then, this? Then I'd rather the kid either straight up come and ask or the parent say, hey, my kid has a question. Yeah. Then just hoping or or kind of assuming that I was listening to their conversation, heard what they were saying, and decided to stop whatever it is I'm doing to turn to them and acknowledge it. Okay, so you, what you're saying is you appreciate when people are more direct with questions that would otherwise make them uncomfortable. Yeah. And when, when people are indirect, it sort of feels like they don't know how to interact with you and they're sort of too, they're too afraid of, of being direct. I, I, yeah, I think it's if you want to come out and ask a question that's like, hey, what's your disability? When were you born? Did you come out in a wheelchair? Yeah. Uh, you know, that's a personal question. So do address me personally. I I always find like there's a way to convey to people that like you're being open and actively listening. Yeah. And almost in that tone, you can breach any subject, even if it's like taboo or potentially even an ism of some kind. Like, oh, I don't mean to be ableist. But can it, like can I come out and ask this question that has always intrigued me or or itched at me about the disabled experience? Like, yeah, I, I would totally encourage that, and I love meeting people who are generous in that regard. Exactly. Like when it when it comes to my particular um, experience talking to children about disability, it's not so much that I don't like the way that the parents handle the situation. It's more that I just I'm always nervous about talking to children, especially like those that I don't know. And I'm not sure how to translate myself to them or or how to present my disability in a way that uh, they can understand. And then they like appreciate the response. I just feel I I don't know, like there's potential to like alienate them or like scare them even or something. I don't know. You're afraid that. Halfway through, they'll be like, oh, you actually don't need to talk that much. Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. You're just like, they're like, why are you in a wheelchair? And you're like, okay, so I have a d- condition. You know how your brain sends signals to the spine? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Like, I'll just, I'll just revert to some sort of, like, boilerplate response that I've been working on or reciting my entire life and forget that I'm actually speaking to a young mind or something. Uh, yeah. Just start reciting the Wikipedia article and halfway through they're like, mom, can we get ice cream? I changed my mind. <laughs> yeah. That's the other thing, like disappointing the parent or something like they're expecting. Wow. Because I feel like they're, I feel like w- when this situation happens, like people are expecting a, like a movie moment. Yeah. Like I, I'm picturing for some reason, like Robin Williams explaining like, some sort of illness to a child and just the way that he, he would do it like comedically and warmly and like in a way that's totally engaging and like naturally kind of uh, heartwarming. And I feel like that's the moment that they want from me. Like when the child comes up to me and I just, I, I can't really do that because I don't know how to talk to children. I definitely share that, that anxiety because I know that just by the way I speak, I'm quiet, kind of mumbly, a little muffled. And I think it's just like my timbre in my voice is a little off-putting to people who don't know me. They think that I'm being standoffish. And it's like a very common 
uh, feedback that I get in first impressions. Really? And I've never really figured out how to get over that. I was just about to say that I don't really like the way you talk about your own voice because it's the only kind of it's the only kind of subject where you constantly put yourself down. I don't know. I mean, I, obviously, I'm doing a podcast. Like I'm not overly conscious about it, but. The volume is definitely something I, I wish I was louder for sure. Because mm. if I'm in a, a group of people, I basically end up not talking. And I think because of even just that, people will think that I'm not engaged or not interested in the conversation. Yeah. The first time I saw you after a few years away from Carlton, we were in a crowd. Yeah. I've told this story before. I dropped a cup. You laughed and then you, you couldn't like, like you saw that I was stressed about dropping the glass and it it had broke and I was afraid of um, driving over the glass shards with my chair. And like you saw the concern on my face and you texted me. And the funny thing was, I didn't even realize that you had my cell phone number. <laughs> so when I got the text, you were like putting me at ease and also la- you made some kind of CP joke and I wish I could remember exactly what it was. But it was like instantaneous understanding of the very experience that I had just gone through. Because you've witnessed several of your other CP friends go through the same thing. And then I couldn't actually go over and talk to you. We had to continue to text because the place was just too loud. I've had so many times where I'm in a bar, literally right beside a friend. And they're like, hey, man, they text me. Yeah. They're like, hey, man, I can't hear you at all. So just text me here if you need like a new drink or something. Yeah, what a, what an experience that is. It's it's so surreal because on one hand, I love that they're putting in that effort yeah. to engage and not just be like, well, I can't hear them, so I'll move on to the next thing. But it's really hard for me to separate from feeling like inferior in that moment just because I can't speak the way everyone else in the bar is doing it. Yeah, like there's parts of that whole experience that you, you just can't, have for yourself yeah and everyone kind of knows it and so it's fine but it still kind of sucks yeah it's like even though someone knows it doesn't change that it's annoying to me um my mom is is deaf in one ear i don't know she's been kind of suffering from chronic hearing loss for years and years and i always tell her that she needs to get a hearing aid because she's constantly accusing me of mumbling. And one thing I do not do is speak unclearly. And so I, I try to tell her like, I'm a loud person. Like you should hear me after Tony makes me laugh or like when I'm lamenting at a, a video game or, you know, scoring a goal. Yeah. Scoring a goal in rocket league. I'm a loud person. Anyway, my mom, um, has been sort of deaf or coping with deafness since she was uh, in her mid-20s, like in the 70s. And her and her girlfriends used to sign to each other. And I always thought that was really cool. Like there's a kind of intimacy in that. Yeah, no, it's super cool. If I had, if I was deaf and my friends signed to me, it would be really cool, A, that they knew how to sign. Were they all deaf? No. Yeah, I guess they just learn how to sign to one another that's really cool yeah see that's super endearing to me when people try to get closer to 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 a person and so i feel that when someone is trying to include me in a place where i can't really talk or whatever 
maybe it's not so much that I feel the anxiety around those people, but I definitely feel that other people that maybe don't understand me as well think that I'm just sitting there not enjoying myself because I'm not talking. Oh. And that really gets in my head, especially because I have like resting bitch face really bad. <laughs> I don't know if this is just a really bad excuse, but I think it's partially my disability. Like my face muscles are like, I'm not keeping this in a smile all the time. So it's just like when I'm like neutral, my face is just like, all right, night off. <laughs> I don't really agree with you. I, I I don't think you have resting bitch face. Okay, well, you'd be like the first person to disagree. Really? Yeah. I don't know. Like, I guess because I don't think of you as having like like a resting grumpy disposition. You just don't register as someone who looks inconvenienced all the time. Like, I'll just be looking at someone, maybe even trying to make nice eyes at someone. And they'll be like, <laughs> why are you glaring at me? Really? Yeah. And I'm like, wait, what? Are you joking or do I actually look terrible right now? Because that, that happens a lot where... I'll, I'll be looking at someone. The other day, I was wearing a mask and someone made a joke and I smiled and my eyes, I don't know what they did, but she was like, oh, wow, that's a ice glare. And I was like, under this mask, I'm smiling. It's interesting that you're, um, this whole conversational thread is about you worried about the frame of mind of the people around you. And of being misinterpreted or misread by them. Yeah, that maybe that's messed up. It's a little messed up. Because I would say, like, the difference in your speech compared to like, a non-disabled person or someone without any impediments to speaking, not that you have a speech impediment, but the difference is, like, it basically amounts to, like, a slight accent, maybe. It's like... It's like a, a bit of a flavor to, to your voice, but it's not substantial enough such that someone who like has a long form conversation with you once should be totally able to communicate with you going forward and, and completely understand what you're saying. You know what I mean? Yeah, I don't think that I'm hard to understand in general. I just always feel like I have. I don't know, like cotton balls in the back of my throat or something. I think I'm also more conscious of it because I assume, I don't know, but I assume in the future, speaking will get next to impossible. My muscles do this thing when they, right before they stop working, where they spasm a lot. And it's like, it's almost like, you know, like when a light bulb is dying and it starts flickering. Yeah. It's almost like the exact same thing. And all of my fingers that have died, that's what's happened is they'll, they'll spasm for a little bit before eventually just giving out. And I've noticed those spasms happening more frequently in my tongue. In your tongue. And that terrifies me. You know, maybe it's just because for work, I'm, I'm in this new role like I uh, and with the podcast, you know, I'm talking more, but... Something in my tongue is like every once in a while, every few sentences, I almost have to pause strategically to let my tongue have a quick uh, seizure and then I keep going. I wonder if, if that has to do with your with your controller. 
like you have to use your 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 mouth a lot for operating devices and maybe 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 you're straining some muscle there in a in a new or uh novel way or something and that's causing yeah because it seems like i want to be more an optimist than anything but it seems like it would be a little weird if all the muscles in your body behaved exa- in exactly the same manner before you lost a function. Yeah, I don't know. I've always thought of it like like a light bulb going out and flickering right before because it's happened ever since I can remember. Like I remember the first time I really noticed it was back when I was like able to play guitar. I used one finger to do all of the fretting and one day that finger started spasming. And I I, I remember being like, oh, this is probably a good thing. Maybe it just means I'm getting exercise and it's like waking itself up. Uh, But then in a pretty short amount of time, I woke up one day and just couldn't move it ever again. And I've never been able to move it since. I just instantly had to give up guitar. And so that one got me. And it's happened a few other times with maybe less significant digits and extremities. Yeah. But it seems to be pretty consistent. It's just a huge fucking bummer. I I have no nowhere to go with that. I, okay. How did we get here? I feel like you were telling a story relating to your first job. Oh, yeah. I just remember a time when I was uh, taking tickets at Silver City, uh, like on a Sunday afternoon, which is like, very slow and this young mother and her daughter like came up to me and the daughter asked her mother what was going on with me and the mother gave like a very concise but kind of sweet response like oh you know he just has trouble using his legs so he he sits down more often than most people (laughs) and the child's response was was literally to like hug me around the waist like she literally like dove in and just like hugged me, uh-huh. and that, that's that's never happened before or since. But I, I remember like just being like it was just like pretty fucking moving, yeah. You know, like the, just this like instant, uh, just the child like clearly had like genuine concern and just wanted to make me feel better or something. And it was I was just like I was shocked, I was stunned. Well, in that moment too, you see how good the parent is at parenting. Hmm that probably plays a huge impact on the daughter's reaction. Yeah. Yeah, that's a really cool... Is that your favorite response to that question from a kid? It's the only one that really comes to mind. All other instances, I've, I've like crawled up too far inside my head to remember what I actually said. Yeah. I kind of agree with what you're saying, you know, when it's cool when the parent at least takes a stab at it. And it's cool when it's like a human first reaction. Like the explanation is, oh, they're just a person, but, you know, something like what you said about getting tired with their legs or whatever. Yeah, in that particular instance, like there was a degree of patience in the, in the mother's tone. And it wasn't like it, it, they weren't she wasn't passing the buck on me yeah. to like like make this child's day or like you know what I mean and so um it just stuck out to me as the kind of the perfect way to address that situation just a lot of sympathy and empathy and yeah patience you can you can tell just from that little exchange 
that the mother is completely open to the child's questions and curiosity. Yeah. That's, that's why I never like to shut it down because I don't want to shut down a person's curiosity even to this day. And people my age, I think curiosity is the coolest thing. It doesn't really matter what you're passionate about, but being passionate about something is the best thing ever. And so when you see that in a kid and a parent actively encouraging it and fostering it, I don't think it gets any better than that. I agree. Yeah, positive reinforcement of curiosity in general is like it it always creates healthier spaces. Yeah. Like I'm thinking about the workplace and about like, you know, private life and everything else, all types. Yeah, exactly. This is a little bit of a segue into something I wanted to bring up, but it's it's something that I actively try to put on my like dating profiles is, you know, just ask questions. Yeah. And like, I'd rather you not know and ask. Today I was in a work call with someone. They were like, hey, quick question. And like, feel free to not answer it super personal. But how do you use your computer? I loved that they were asking me that because it was, I mean, it shows interest, which is obviously cool. Yep. But it's so much better than just going home and trying to figure it out or, you know, just never knowing and just like never addressing it. Mm -hmm. And I understand that some people wouldn't be comfortable with that question. Yeah. They might be offended to hear it. Be like, it's none of your business or, you know, just focus on the work or I don't know what the reaction might have been. Yeah. You might put up a boundary. It depends on the situation. Yeah. But I was excited to, to bring it up. Anyway, back to the dating thing. I have a I have a dating story that happened fairly recently, and I haven't really been sure whether I can bring it up on here publicly. But I've been I was talking to someone on an online dating app, mm-hmm. and it, we were just talking for a short while, but things were escalating fairly quickly. Agreed to meet. Up. Okay, hold on. Can I can I unpack the word escalating for a moment, please? Yeah, so an escalator <laughs> is similar to the staircase you have behind you. Uh-huh. But it moves automatically in an upward linear direction. No, it was just to be fair, you know, we've talked about how few and far between interactions like this come. Yeah. Hold on. Okay. Wait, I feel like you're talking around something and so I just want to get back to it so when you say it was escalating do you mean that uh you guys were talking about a number of topics and conversation was flowing very nicely or do you mean that there was a lot of flirtation or do you mean that it was evident that she didn't really care that you were disabled and she was getting quite like verbally frisky like what 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 do you mean by escalating tony door number three (laughs) All right. So I, I feel like I, okay, that's good. Okay. So she was verbally frisky. All right. Verbally frisky and temp- temptations and a bunch of other cat food brands. So everything seemed cool. Hold on. So because of this, like uh, uh mutual flirtation, that's why you were afraid to kind of bring it up in the podcast. No. Okay. I'm so I, I I don't mean to be playing dating charades. I just feel like like you need me to to ask you these questions. 
you can ask. Yeah, I I definitely feel a little uncomfortable opening up about this. A, because I don't want to like, I, I still haven't quite unpacked myself around it. So I was figuring like, let's just do it right here in real time. So um, for the episode, we actually watched a movie that was kind of like a, like a romance between two uh, chronically ill people, or, you know, you could say two disabled people. So I suppose we could kind of make this story um, tangentially relevant to the film we watched. I think we can, especially when you, when you hear how it goes. Okay. Okay. So wait, 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 she didn't die of cystic fibrosis, did she? She did not have cystic fibrosis. Okay, okay. And as far as I know, she did not die. Okay, that's good. That's good. Uh, so things are going okay. We agreed to meet up. On the day that we were going to meet up, uh-huh. we were like texting about plans or whatever. So I said basically that I was excited to, to meet up, you know? Yep. And then she responded, me too. I'm excited to be able to do this for you. Uh-oh. Yeah. Oh my God. That's a, that's a fucking plot twist. Someone call him Night Shyamalan. In my mind, I was like, first of all, caught so off guard because everything seemed totally fine until that point. Yeah. By the way, this is a wonderful premise for a rom com. Is like it? For the yeah, for the opening act of a rom com to try to to try to communicate how. Oh yeah, the opening act. Yeah, the par- how perilous like like the dating scene is for your average disabled person. Where you have a prospect that seems like such an incredibly sure thing, and everything is firing on all cylinders, and all that's all that's left to do is fucking <clears throat> seize the day, so to speak. And then she's like, "I'm excited to be able to help you seize my day, or something." Again, because opportunities like this are more infrequent than in other situations they would be. Yeah, yeah. and so when something like this comes up, it's easy to get overly excited overly ambitious and overly in your head about the whole thing yeah but then also when things are going well it's also easy to be like when is the other shoe gonna drop what's the catch oh yeah my brain constantly does that yeah yeah so i was doing that but i kept you know trying to logic my way around it be like come on just why can't you let something just be a good thing which is exactly what you'd say to me by the way yeah, because we have conversations like this so that one of us can check the other person. Anyway, so she's like, I'm excited to do this for you. Those two words, those two words, like unravel the whole thing. For you. Yeah, for you. Not with you. Yeah. For you. Yeah. Oh. I, I remember reading that message probably like 14 times. Just being like, is there another way that it could come off? My follow-up question was like, who else do you, would be like, who else do you do this for? Like, do you have clientele? Is that what this is? <laughs> that would have been a great question. Yeah, that's... I just went like, I said, what do you mean for me? She was like... Is this going to hurt my soul? I'm still processing it for sure. Okay, okay. okay. Probably that's... evidenced by my very non-linear explanation of the whole thing. Yep. Yeah, she was like, well, I assume, based on your circumstance, this type of thing probably doesn't happen as often. And so I'm excited to be the one to do it for you. And again, she said, for you. And in that moment, I was actually like, 
okay, maybe this is coming from a place of empathy. And I think even in that moment when I said that to myself, I was like trying to talk myself down off the ledge. You know, I still now thinking about it doesn't really make me feel much better. But she says that and I was like, okay, yeah, uh, is this, are you doing this out of some kind of pity or guilt? Oh, that's like, that question is like really raw. That's the quiet, that's the quiet part. Most people are never forced to answer that question. The quiet part? What do you mean? Like, you know, the quiet part loud. Yeah, yeah, it was, because I had never met this person before, right? This is going to be the first time. And I I was really trying to, to, like, keep my mind open. So I decided to still meet her. And you haven't yet? No, 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 I met her. My goodness. And when I met her, she it came up again, obviously. And then she said... I just thought I could do you a favor. Oh, no. And the word favor really set me off. Oh, no. She's six feet under now. That's it. You don't come back from that. As soon as she said favor, I was like, I don't even know if I believe this, but I said, I appreciate what you're trying to do, but I just don't think I can do it knowing that this is where you're coming at it from. I would have asked her, I would have asked her, uh, <clears throat> I would have just asked her if she had any like mutual attraction to you or if the idea that you could reciprocate toward her, uh, what, if she had considered the idea of you reciprocating in any way, because if, it, if it's not, if it's not a, what the fuck am I trying to say? First of all, her choice of language is like uniformly awful across the board it's like it's like this. It's like this was a, an interaction written for Curb Your Enthusiasm or, <laughs> you know, a c- contemporary dark Seinfeldian comedy. Like it, she just said the worst possible things you could say. That's awful. So I, I'm sorry that happened to you. I would be after the fact. I would have been emotionally drained and like furious on some level. I was never mad, honestly. If anything, I was mad at myself for maybe not pushing myself further. What do you mean pushing yourself like pushing yourself further like uh taking a chance with the person and seeing where it goes? Yeah. It that's that's the thing. Like if she had completely excluded the idea that you could reciprocate, like you know that you could do her a favor, then I wouldn't do it because then that's completely wrong and she's obviously trying to alleviate some kind of uh guilt that she has <clears throat> toward her perceived experience of what it means to be disabled and like, you know, unwillingly abstain from intimacy. I just, I didn't think, and I still don't really think I would have been into it if I knew that that's where it was coming from. Well, it's like, it's like, would you, would you be into this kind of exchange with a sex worker for the same reason? I don't know. I, I've never really thought about it in those terms. Uh, I guess with a sex worker, you would be, like th- there's a different transaction happening so i don't know see see to me the odd thing is that like from reading your dating profile and talking to you for any amount of time she would know that what you're looking for is not just like a a, a hookup or a pity fuck like she knows you're looking for a meaningful relationship well that's that's what really threw me off is the week leading up to this wasn't it, it, I had no indication that it was going to go this way. Uh-huh. 
I don't think I would have cared as much if I didn't care, you know? Yeah, that's, so that's why I asked that question about like, how many other people have you done this kind of favor for? Does she have like a history of this scenario for whatever reason? And that's why it seems normal to her to treat you like this? I don't know. Okay, so like the final, the final, final thing that happened was when she was like, yeah, I just want to do your favor. I, I, I didn't think to say anything like that. I instantly just kind of like shot into the center of my own head. But I, I said, uh, I said basically what I said to you. Like, I just don't know if I'd be able to bring myself to be into it, knowing that that is where it was coming from. The simplest way to, to, to phrase it is just what's in it for you. What's in it for me or what's in it for her? Yeah, yeah, exactly. What's in it for her? That's what I mean. Because like, that's that's what I want to know. Like, what is in it for her? I don't know. I, maybe just like some people enjoy taking care of people. Some people enjoy. I don't know. I could have asked her. I should have asked her. Yeah, we could make conjectures all day. I d- I want to know from her exactly what's in it for her. Yeah. Because maybe maybe there is something in it for her that would make it okay for you. I don't know. Yeah, I just I I don't know. I wasn't. Did you enjoy talking it. to her? Sorry, I'm interrupting you. Not in person, no. <laughs> what? Because basically, this happened. I said the thing about like not really feeling if I'd be okay with it, and then she was like, "Yeah, fair enough, no problem." Pulled out her phone, and I was like, "I think I'm going to head out anyway." Oh wow! And that's just how it ended. Oh my goodness! And so I was just left there, kind of stunned. Yeah. And in that moment, yeah, I was emotionally drained. Yep. And so later. Because this whole time, we actually hadn't even exchanged numbers. We were still talking over the app. And later that day, I kind of was like reeling a bit, maybe feeling lonely and sorry for myself. So I was like, maybe I'll just reach back out and try to get back to the conversation and try to figure out where she's coming from. Maybe I can humanize it a bit more. Oh, God. Oh, no. No, it doesn't really go anywhere because... I looked, I opened up the app and she had unmatched me. Okay. So I think it was a super transactional thing. I honestly don't think. I wonder if she would have like even asked for some kind of compensation at some point. If it's, if it was that fucking transactional. I didn't even think about that. Cause I probably would have done, like it probably would have escalated another floor uh-huh. if she hadn't told me beforehand. Yeah. like And so we probably, something might have happened. And then afterwards, I almost feel like it would have just ended in the same spot. Right. It would have just been either right before or right after. She would have shown her cards like afterglow. And then you would have been like, "Uh oh, I feel terrible. Yeah. And I don't know what would have felt worse. So I don't know. Maybe I protected myself from greater pain, but I'm still, still definitely processing the whole thing because... It's never been that raw for me. Yeah. You know, I've always had those anxieties. Like, why do they like me? Uh, why would they? It might be a guilt thing. Maybe it's a pity thing. You know, I've I've thought those things over the years. But I've never had it sort of shoved in my face like that. Yeah, that's really hard. But it does kind of relate to the movie we watched. Unhealthy things pulling people together and pushing people apart. Fair enough. But that that might be a stretch just to try to bring it back to what we were supposed to talk about today. I'm just thinking about times where 
I've been confronted with like uncomfortable truths, like things you sort of suspect that uh, like underscore your interactions in the dating realm and people never really come out and say it. So it somewhat drives you crazy. And then one day, like someone in a, a moment of weakness or less tact says something that kind of sits with you. And I have a few examples of that, but I don't really want to dive into it. I just know that every disabled person knows the pain or the, the, um, stress or whatever that you've gone that you've gone through in this situation just it gets easier over time but it's never like fun no rejection is never fun it would be weird if it was fun like you enjoy being rejected <laughs> yeah they say yes and you're like damn it <laughs> damn it i really wanted to grow interpersonally <laughs> should we get into this movie yeah it's all you take it away i've been talking too much so we watched a, a 2019 romantic drama called Five Feet Apart. And it's about uh, two young kids, uh, like freshman high school age, 14, 15, who, who um, both have chronic illnesses, like uh, forms of cystic fibrosis, which I don't actually know the prognosis of, but maybe Tony can get into it. But basically, these two young kids are residing like semi-permanently in a, a children's hospital. It's like a, a swanky private hospital with all the fixings. And they're both undergoing experimental treat, treatments for their various illnesses and waiting for lung transplants. Um, and it's within this setting that they meet each other and fall in love. And so, yeah, it's, it's just a love story. And it's basically about the day-to-day of existing in a hospital setting. And the the conceit of the film is that one of the two in the romantic pair um, has a has a kind of bacterial infection where he can't be around another person with cystic fibrosis because his lungs may be compromised and he could die. So they have to they have to socially distance. Uh, and so the movie poses the question: You know, how do you fall in love when you can't touch each other or kiss or consummated in any meaningful way and i guess as a pre-pandemic uh premise that's quite novel and could be interesting if the script is smart but now like in the um present moment it's it seems weirdly prescient like it's it, it feels like allegorical for the pandemic or like the movie itself like kind of felt the like like the pandemic coming in the ether or something. Uh, but I, I don't know. It, it's, a, it's a sweet movie, like with a good heart, I think. It's just sort of belabored by like all kinds of different tropes about like, sick films and, and like tragic porn or something. I don't know. There's a bunch of stuff about it that doesn't really work and... Well, we're not really the target demographic for it. We should be 20 years younger, I think. So it kind of bounced off me, and I think it did Tony as well for some things. But we should we should talk about what it does right, because there's a couple of things that, that, it, that it sort of does that I did appreciate, and that's probably worth talking about. Yeah, so straight off the bat, I don't think it was ill-informed in, in making the movie. You mean like it, it knew about the illnesses of the characters? 
Exactly. It seemed to understand cystic fibrosis, which as far as I know, so yeah, so it's a it's a genetic disease that basically fills your lungs with fluid forever. Gross. Which is terrible. And so yep. you have to go through a bunch of treatments and stuff to try to get through that. I think people can live a good like couple of decades with it, which I don't know if that's actually good. But this movie made it seem like you get CF. And what do you mean you can live a couple decades with it and you don't know if it's good in terms of quality of life? Well, I'm just saying like, I don't know if it's good to say that living for 25 years is good. I don't know about that. You're saying that you think that's a respectable amount of time? I mean, to know you're only going to live a quarter century certainly sucks, but there's a lot of people who've died young that seem to lead, you know, fruitful lives. Yeah, I think it's enough time that you you could definitely enjoy yourself if you... There's a spectrum though, right? And I don't want to claim to know much about cystic fibrosis besides the tiny bit that I've read and... Uh, you know, so I, I don't want to act like I know much. Can I ask why you thought this movie was appropriate for the podcast? Because within the first 10 minutes, there is a feeding tube on one of the characters. Mm-hmm. And it's the exact feeding tube that I have. And I've never felt so seen before. And you're like only half being sarcastic, right? I'm 100% being genuine. Mm. When I first saw this movie... I was I was like excited to see. First of all, in my mind, it almost normalized it, right? Because mm-hmm. your feeding tube is like one thing that you're constantly self conscious of. hundred oh, percent. And, and it fucking it's a fucking bane on your existence because it's constantly malfunctioning, and your care workers are incompetent and don't know how to fucking fix it for you. I I honestly think it takes up ten percent of my mind all the time. Also, when I'm speaking for you, please let me know if I'm putting words in your mouth. I mean, same to you. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it does have some tools that they use. It has nebulizers. I've used nebulizers. That's pretty fun that they've gone into all that. Although I don't think it takes a massive amount of work and research. You know, you commit to making a movie about cystic fibrosis. You read a couple of Wikipedia articles, talk to a few people with it. And you've done about the amount of research that they needed for this movie. All that said, a few... Oh, that, I just remembered one of the lines that I wanted to clip and I didn't. But there were moments where I definitely felt like they had referred to people with CF when they were writing the movie. Yeah. And that was great to me. Right. Also, remember a few episodes back... You asked me what my feeding tube looks like, mm-hmm. and I tried to explain it to you. Now you were able to see it, and so that was cool. Right. A couple of things that I sort of appreciated about this movie right off the bat, like even in the opening scenes, is I think it does a really good job of, first of all, like the majority of events in the film are purely from the perspective of the patients at the hospital yeah Uh, there are a few like nursing and admitting staff and whatever and they are typically there to crack the whip and keep the kids under control and remind them of their of the constraints of their disability and tell them not to fucking like fornicate or do anything fun 
So that's kind of it's kind of like it's kind of like Harry Potter, but instead of Hogwarts, it's a hospital. <laughs> like I spent a couple months in a hospital as a kid recovering from a major surgery that I've talked about a number of times. And like the general spirit of the place and like the the aesthetic, like how things are sort of uh, tailored to look inviting to children and like, you know, like the actual medical elements of the place are sort of hidden away from view that sort of resonated with me and like when i went when i was in hospital i spent this was i was like 14 or 15 so around the same age as the characters in this film yeah and uh, the main character in this movie spends a lot of time like doing homework uh and trying to like remain abreast of like the goings-on of of being a fucking high schooler uh and so she's like writing essays and and uh she's looking on social media to see what her friends are doing and she's she's getting like major FOMO and listening to music and being a person also she has a, a video blog that it sort of feels like the um the lead actress of the film herself like ad-libbed a lot of the dialogue for it because she delivers it's like so naturalistically and it's the quality of the writing is so much higher uh, like in her in her speech and in her mannerisms uh than like the rest of the film holistically yeah we should talk about her for a sec she's so amazing yeah well i don't even know her name she reminds me of a more tenacious almost amelia clark like just like so confident and exuberant and i don't know i really liked the the main performance from her um her name by the way is Haley lou richardson yeah, I really hope she becomes a thing because she's pretty, pretty special in this movie, um, especially in the first third or so, like kind of before the the core romance, like kind of really uh, steals the rest of the film. Anyway, so, yeah, I, I spent months in a hospital setting as a kid and I remember like hating so many little things about about my regiment, my care regiment, like while I was healing and in like basically a full body cast from below the waist. And we've talked about, you know, like bedpans and like little just logistics of transferring and um, pain management and stuff like that. Like it's really such a slog, but like as a kid, like the one thing that you're so mortified of is kind of like um, losing touch with your old life, your, your pre hospital life. And just like trying to stay connected with, with your friends and your family and just like not, not being in the hospital despite that you are there and you can't leave like emotionally and like whatever you need to you need to be fucking elsewhere and remember that you're you're still a kid and i think this movie does a really good job of that whole thing to set that up at the very beginning of the movie so it starts out with Haley, whose name is stella her character is stella which is a very like like weirdly uh that's it doesn't really seem like a kid's name. No. You thinking of like Stella Artois? Or I'm thinking like Stella like uh off the boat like U- Ukrainian person. Really? Yeah, like grew up on I don't farm. know I don't think I know any Stellas in real life. Exactly. It's a weird like uh previous like it's a name from a couple generations ago. I like names that you don't hear very often though. Like, how many times do you meet someone our age, a man named George? That's a rare... My dad's name is George. Yeah, but your dad's like 90. 
He's 17. Yeah, okay. He has Benjamin Button disease? Yeah, he was 90. And now he's <laughs> 17. So, Stella, who's not Ukrainian. <laughs> I am Ukrainian, by the way, so I can make weird generalizations about us. Ukrainians are white. You can make fun of them either way. I guess so. Um, but so, yeah, she is in her hospital room with her friends and they're all hanging out, girls being girls. Then they leave to go party and have fun and have a good time. Yeah. And Stella is there to be like, have fun, have a good time. And then the door closes and you can sort of see the veneer of joy fall away. Yeah. And then she grabs her her machines and puts her oxygen on and starts doing her regimen again. That actually resonated with me a little bit. I don't know if it ever resonates. Do you ever experience situations where people are over at your house, you're having a great time, uh-huh. and then your friends all leave to go have some inaccessible fun, yeah. and you just stay home? Yeah, that, that used to happen a lot. They'd go to a particular bar that I couldn't go to downtown. And you have to just be cool to like, yeah, yeah, no big deal. I actually, I'm tired or I, there's a show I really wanted to finish or yeah. I got homework to do or whatever. But really, you're like, damn, I want to go to the bar. I feel like, you know what, dude, it's fine. I, I really just need a good cry by myself after you leave. So <laughs> yeah, my eyes are feeling a bit dry anyway, to be honest. <laughs> Yeah, I got to lubricate my eyes. <laughs> we should cut that out. <laughs> I'll just cut out the eyes part. So it'll just be, I got to lubricate. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that was good. Now we got to keep it in. Fuck. <laughs> but yeah, I've definitely had those moments where friends go to inaccessible fun times. <laughs> It'd be funny if they like, they like did something to like block the exit of your house so you couldn't follow them. <laughs> Like, make it, like, that explicit? They just carry around a portable step, <laughs> and they put it at your door and then walk away. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Don't get any ideas. Okay, bye. <laughs> In those moments, they leave, and I have to, like, call my attendant and change the bandage on my feeding tube or use a urinal to go pee or whatever. Yeah. And just do your disabled thing again. And then you almost, it kind of reinforces the whole reason you can't go with them in the first place. Right. Yeah. You're like, oh, this is why I'm not with them right now. That's a hard feeling. And I like, I think they captured that really well mm-hmm. to sort of set the whole tone of the movie. Yep. She's more or less alone, even though she seems to be an amazing person with amazing friends. Mm-hmm. There, it's just a limit of her life. Yeah. Amidst all these sort of compliments, can I say one thing that really bothered me about the film? Yeah. Uh, it's a small thing. Every sick person in this movie has sick face. Yeah. And, and it's like uh, this thing where they look like they look like vampires, like in a Twilight movie, uh, you know, where they have they have like like pale complexion and like like eyeshadow around their eyes. And they, they just they look like they need to blow their nose like real good. They have sick face. They do. And it's it's almost like the makeup artist that they hired yeah. was one of those YouTube artists who does YouTube tutorials on how to like make a fake star using mascara or whatever. 
And then they hired them for this role and they were like, oh, this is it. Right. Or, you know, some guy got fired off the set of The Walking Dead. And he's like, oh, what am I going to do with all this zombie makeup that I bought? And then they're like, oh, don't yeah. worry, we're making a movie called Five Feet Apart. Don't worry, people with cystic fibrosis never sleep, apparently. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> they never have color in their cheeks. Yeah, no, that that's a that's a pretty funny little thing that, that is, you know, they don't try to hide anyone's beauty it is a teen movie you mentioned that very much a teen movie it's so emotional it's like it's like pure hormones yeah. all throughout the film uh i gotta be honest i think the first time i watched it the ending got me lubricating i didn't even understand the ending to be honest you're gonna have to explain to me like but anyway so i think there's a clip we have to play around now no which one? You didn't get the one where uh, Stella says that if you have cystic fibrosis, you're basically uh, an unofficial or an armchair PhD by the time you're 12. Because you have to. That's the one, as I was talking, I realized I forgot. Mm, yeah, okay. Well, that's basically the clip. That's what she says. Yeah, she, she delivers very perfectly. What do you mean? Everyone with CF is basically a doctor by the age we're 12. Uh-huh. And it was written like she definitely wasn't talking to the person she was talking to. Yeah. It was like exposition. And when we were watching it, I kind of paused the movie and was we talked about it for a second because it really feels like that was the most informed line of the movie, but it just wasn't written in very well, I don't think. It was like... Yeah, like very organically. Yeah, it didn't feel organic at all. It just felt like someone made a comment in the writer's room and then they throw that in the script. You think they could have made it better if they showed like kind of a comparison between the competency of Stella's doctor versus her own understanding of what she's going through? Yeah, exactly. I think overall, this movie didn't do a great job of uh, show me, don't tell me. Mm. Yeah, there's a lot of... Uh, the the one, like, it's it seems sort of not a very good exercise to complain about the fidelity of the writing in a teen movie, because this is a, this is kind of a wheelie film that isn't trying to be an award winner. And I always sort of, yeah, I always sort of tend to be more generous toward these types of movies because they're not trying to win awards. So you can just take them for what they are. And in a sense, you uh, like my guard is somewhat down. I, I, I was in a, I, I was being a bit of a of a bitch last night. I was kind of grumpy. You were. I feel like the whole movie, I was like, dude, come on. Yeah, and then I thought about it afterwards, and I was like, you know what? I just didn't have myself in the right headspace. I wasn't thinking about it from the perspective of like other 14-year-old kids who might be watching this thing. Yeah. Um, and so I, I, I need to apologize to you for that because I was... I I should have had my Smallville hat on. Okay, well, I accept your apology, and that's a pretty quick uh, introspective turnaround, so I respect that. <laughs> but before you put your Smallville hat on, why don't you talk about what you were disliking about it? Because it might be interesting to compare with and without your Smallville hat. So I guess the one thing that I that kind of bothered me is that, okay, well, first of all, these movies about sick people tend to be all about the sickness and not about the people. And uh, 
So, you know, after the first, like the introductory, like 10 to 15 minutes where we get to know Stella and sort of what she does occupationally to fill her time and the kind of person that she is like all that character work is wonderful. And then, and then the movie relegates itself to, to romantic duty and it becomes completely uninteresting. Cause I think the, um, the male love interest opposite Stella is really boring and he kind of looks like uh, an early 20 something Johnny Depp who needs to eat a sandwich. Uh, and he's just like really brooding, like a vampire, but <clears throat> uninteresting. And wait, wait, wait. Before before you go, I just want to say. So yesterday when we were watching it, you kept being like, "Stop using CF and sickness as a, a vehicle for Hollywood's romantic teen movie." And I still stand by you on that. Yeah, as a, as an as an opposite as an obstacle uh, for love between two people. And actually the Wikipedia page for this fu- very fucking movie says that the cystic fibrosis society like objected to like that sort of that plot element of the film. Yeah. I still stand by that. The thing is, I, this is a, a thing that I've always struggled with is yeah. where do you draw the line? Like, yeah, cause this is something that I'm sure people with CF can relate to, especially teens with CF. And so finally they get to be shown. Yeah. And I mean, like, that's the other thing is that it's kind of a double standard on my part because I mean, how often on this podcast did we talk about how difficult it is to have a meaningful private life with a fucking disability? We devoted the first half of this episode to (laughs) a debacle that you just recently underwent. So yeah, like it's obviously an important subject. Um, and so I, I guess it boils down to how smartly you interweave the disability or the like illness elements into the romance uh, and how well-developed your characters are. And, you know, like whether you actually yeah. root for them. Uh, yeah, it, it felt like it didn't dive deep enough. And this is something I've struggled with in other movies too, where it's like, maybe it's because it's the first movie that talks about cystic fibrosis. So you can't dive too deep on the first pass. Uh-huh. I don't even know if I really agree with that sentiment, but it it does feel like they just, just scratched the surface on what was, what was possible. Yeah. I mean, it's just like straight up, not a very good romance. There's not a whole lot of chemistry between the leads they are together strictly because they are the two most attractive actors on set. <laughs> um, one one thing that I really didn't like in the sort of like courtship phase of the film, like Stella. Okay, so this is actually something I did like. Let me go back two steps. Uh-huh. Stella and what's his face? Uh, sh- shitty Johnny Depp. I can't remember his name. I don't remember either. It was Will. Okay, so Stella and Will. Um, approach their uh, disabilities differently. Stella's very micromanaging. Uh, she's hyper aware of all of her needs and she's constantly self-administering uh, her care. She's, she develops an iOS app, which to the movie's credit, it actively shows her writing, which I thought was really cool. The nerds in us pause the movie to try to figure out what language it was. Yeah, yeah. I, I like that. Like, you know, Disabled people in 
in movies should have hobbies and lives. Yeah. Uh, they should have things pulling them in, in certain directions and their disability should be an obstacle that accentuates what it is that they are actually trying to accomplish, which is to live and be a person. Uh, and so anyway, so I'd like that sort of building block. So Stella and Will approach their, their disabilities differently. Will is very like lethargic and depressed. And he's like, kind of, I think he sort of resigned himself to his fate. He thinks that this bacterial infection is going to kill him sooner than later. So he's kind of resolved to like brooding and neglecting himself. And Stella is driven crazy by this, um, I guess, because she thinks he's cute and she wants him to exist in order for them to fall in love for the rest of the film. I don't know. But uh, so anyway, Stella decides to take uh, Will under her wing and try to like, you know, make him exercise and take his pills and oh also you should read this research about your experimental treatment and inform yourself and so she she takes him under her wing and becomes like a helicopter mom and the the kind of gross thing about it is that like will uh is attracted to her because she's she's interesting and beautiful and he starts to abide her her regiment and then at some point in the movie, he's like, okay, so I've been doing everything you've asked me to do. I've been a good little boy. Like, like, when are you going to reciprocate? And I, and I was like, who the fuck wrote this movie? This is gross. Like, the guy doesn't hasn't even displayed any, like, fucking redeeming qualities. He's not, like, he's not pulling his weight in any way. And then he's asking Stella for, like, a fucking hookup or something. Like, ugh. Hey, you know, this sucks. Mm-hmm. When is this deal of ours become mutually beneficial oh fuck you i've done everything you've asked with no return on my investment yeah no return on your investment go fuck yourself okay well first of all he's not asking for a hookup he's asking to draw her oh well whatever that's weird too like he's trying to pull a leonardo dicaprio and titanic stella's very much like you're not doing the regiment and i have ocd and i need you to do it otherwise it makes me crazy yeah. Will is like, well, I don't care. I'm too broody to care. Yeah. It's not cool to care. Yeah, it's not cool to want to live. I'd rather sit on the roof and stare at the skies in the cold while my lungs shrink. Yeah, I'd rather pretend this is a Tim Burton movie. Yeah. She's like, I want you to do it. He's like, fine. But only if you let me draw you. Which and then and then it doesn't really like delve into what that means. Like, does he want to draw her nude? What does that mean? That's kind of creepy. Like, come on, movie. The romance doesn't ever feel earned. She's putting in all the work. Yeah. Stella at first hates him and thinks he's like annoying and pretentious and gross and basically just irresponsible yeah but then he never proves that then he never actually proves that he is responsible or like never actually does anything to like show her something like you know anything at all come on dude yeah he becomes a project for her yep and within that she starts to like him there's a bit of a hint later in the movie that maybe she likes him because he's so risk taker and he's adventurous and spontaneous and yeah she's so controlling that maybe they can meet somewhere in the middle so i respect that but it's it again i feel like they just wrote it they did a couple passes and then they made the movie yeah aside from stella i think her character was amazing 
Mm-hmm. And her acting sold it through the roof. Will was fine. I honestly like Poe better than Will. Poe is her gay best friend. Yeah. Which is which is a trope required of all romantic comedies. Yeah, because you need someone to tell you when you're messing up and push you back into his arms. It's like a non a non-threatening male influence that can talk to her about pursuing an active sex life, blah blah blah. Yeah. The the romance never really got me, but maybe that's because we're not teenagers. It could be. I don't know, man. I tend to really like romantic comedies. I love when actors have chemistry and when oftentimes in spite of, of, of shitty dialogue or certain requirements of the genre, the movie ends up feeling fresh or there's like an energy to it. I don't know. I, I have a bunch of like shitty stock romantic comedies in my mind that actually work just because of chemistry and the movie doesn't even have that yeah and then so if it has no romantic chemistry and and then it's kind of like it has nothing for its characters to do besides constantly talk about that they're sick and that they're gonna die and to speak in um, platitudes about seizing the day and all that it was depressing because the first 25 to 30 minutes uh, are are good yeah, And then it does that like Grey's Anatomy thing where there's like a rapid succession of of tragic or dramatic circumstances like Stella's friend Poe like basically succumbs to his illness and he like dies right in front of her and they, then they play a pop song. Every emotional moment yeah. is followed by a pop song. Yeah, it's almost like they had a, a soundtrack that was bundled with the film where they had a bunch of uh, obligations to like, yeah, it's, it's, it's Grey's Anatomy syndrome. You know, the end of every episode of Grey's has to uh, be sponsored by a, a pop, pop star and they got to play an emotional song about the episodic character that they introduced 42 minutes ago who died of some elaborate form of cancer, but then nonetheless like helped Meredith uh, continue to have a relationship with whatever new instance of McDreamy has currently popped up in the show. I gotta be honest, you sound like a huge Grace fan right now. My sister has been watching it since 2004, and I caught a lot of episodes along the way. Yeah, sounds like an easy excuse for sure. Yeah, yeah. and I am also very familiar with Days of Our Lives <laughs> with a a lot of this stuff. I'm not a, I'm not ashamed. You shouldn't be. Shonda Rhimes is talented. She's just like, she spreads herself too thin. She's too prolific. She needs to focus on one show. But let's go back to a couple of good things. One moment in the movie was that moment by the pool. Uh-huh. I feel like this was a good disability on-screen moment where they were talking about how they're both insecure. They both don't feel like their life is where they want it to be. Maybe they're getting in their own way but they're not in the place that they wish they were. And then in a moment of vulnerability, it's, it's a little cheesy because they're, they're using a pool cue to stay five feet apart. Uh-huh. Cut to, they're both naked, well, in their underwear, standing there looking at each other, looking at their stars and their disability imperfections, all their curves and all their edges. That's, a, to me, a decent disability moment. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that was maybe the most convincing romantic scene in the movie. For some reason, I ended up thinking of the scene in Desert Inn uh, with 
uh, Mr. Anthony Lopez. And uh, the other really poor thing. Yeah, there's a similar similar setup there, but it's a lot more intimate and kind of um, there's like an air of like mystery and uncertainty and it's really raw. And like the exposure of the disability is more impactful, I think. That might be us not wearing Smallville hats. Yeah. Because like they did, you know, they have scars everywhere. There's a feeding tube out. In that moment, when I saw it, I it spoke to me a bit because it's hard. You know, I still have a hard time having my shirt off in public or something. And so I, I get it. I just think we have to remember, like, while we're watching this movie, we have to remember who it was made for. Yeah, you're right. As much as they used CF to make a movie and to sort of act as the crux of a a love story. Again, there are people in that situation. It's a very relatable thing to a lot of people. I I wanted to bring up this line, because you hated this line. So your plan is to die really smart so that you can join the debate team of the dead or something? What about traveling the world? I have a bitterness about people who make it their life goal to travel the world, um, because... And I know this is internalized ableism. Generally speaking, I can't travel without a whole lot of forethought and work. And I just like, I think the way that our culture has like romanticized tourism is a little bit stupid. I understand the value of going and, and immersing yourself in other cultures and environments, like seeing the world and talking to a variety of people and like gaining a wealth of different experiences, but just the idea of being a tourist, it's like a form of like, like a perpetual displacement. Like you, you go to a location and then the idea is that you're going to experience what it means to be there. And ultimately I don't think you can know a place unless it's your home and you can't have a hundred, you can't have a hundred different homes. Like the touristy things of any given place are often like quite uh, tedious for the people that actually live there. And those things don't actually represent home to them. So when we say like, oh, I really need to go see this particular monument or stand at the top of this elaborate, historically significant staircase, or I really need to ride the, ride the roads of this place or scale the terrain of that place. It's like, no, you don't. Like you're trying to find yourself. You're not going to go to like a, a point on a map somewhere and, and suddenly gain some kind of emotional fulfill- fulfillment. It, that's bullshit. That's BS. Like, don't get me wrong. I want to go to Tokyo and I want to experience like like a, the E3 Game Summit. And I I, I want to go to Las Vegas at some point. But like the, romantic, the romanticization of travel is horseshit. People, people are meant to build to make homes. Like, like home is important. Travel is is fine, but it's a distraction. I don't know if I necessarily agree. I will say it feels like you actually have come a long way since yesterday. Because yesterday during the scene, you were like noticeably angry at that line. Oh, yeah. You were like yelling at the guy. And now you definitely have a more rounded, formed thought. So I appreciate that you've 
thought about it. You can probably tell that I've experienced the conversation in which, I don't know, this definitely relates to something that someone said to me at some time and it kind of broke my heart. And so now I cope with it by uh, idealizing the opposite. Yeah. 100% I get that. I also fully appreciate uh, that travel is relatively inaccessible. It's so inaccessible. Yeah. We could start a travel industry specifically for disabled people, and it would be harder to administer than the non-disabled travel industry. Yeah, absolutely. At the same time, I don't know if it's fair to say this is the way to be. People are meant to live in their home and to make a home. Like I think that's a valid way to live, but... It's not the only way. But what I'm saying is that when when people travel, they are looking for a home. They are looking... Are they? I mean, okay, so it's about, I suppose, like exploration and a sense of freedom and being untethered from your life elsewise. So yeah, it is a vacation, of course. But I, I, I still think that it's disproportionately romanticized. I don't think that tourists actually understand like what it means to be in the place that they are visiting. And I think if they, if they think that they are, um, you know, growing as an individual just for being there or biking there or walking there or like learning a little bit of the language, I think that's like kind of a bit of bullshit. Well, I've lived in Ottawa for over a decade now and I'm still discovering new parts of it that I've never seen. Yeah, yeah, and that's that's really cool. I value new experiences quite a bit. I value them more than material things. And even though I have a nice house, I've poured a decent amount of time, effort, and money into. I often get more caught up in the fact that maybe I'm being too materialistic and not valuing experiences enough. But I think the main thing is just that. Like you were hinting at, and I think you might have just said it, travel is not accessible. Yeah. And so it's easy to get insecure, you know, when someone's like, I just want to be able to travel on dating apps. I'll bring it back to dating again. But like on dating apps, I see people all the time like, I just want to travel, buddy. I'm always hiking. I'm always looking for a hiking partner. Yeah, by the by the way, the number of people who say they hike or travel on dating apps is about 95%. 95 of them say they want that and probably about 2% actually do it. It's just like this weird thing like it's 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 the modern equivalent of long walks on the beach. Right. Long walks on a beach in another country. Uh, yeah. I I also think about like whenever you talk about someone who has worked in the service industry for most of their lives, they fucking hate tourists. Like even the good ones, yeah. like tourists suck because like they're, they have this like big ego about like, like wanting to experience the, the sights and attractions of where they are. And it's, it's a, it's a lie. It's, there's, there's a capitalistic component of it that is not real. There are ways to travel too, you know, you can travel and just hit all the landmarks, all the tourist attractions, or you can stay in a hostel and uh, backpack through the mountains or something like those are there are different ways to travel it depends on what you're trying to get out of it i think the people that work in the service industry 
that get sick of the tourists, or because of the tourists that think that travel is, or that the place that they're traveling to is theirs. Yeah, or that it it should it should necessarily accommodate them. Yeah, yeah, which is ultimately, uh, I'm sure, terrible. It's it's just like an overly demanding person calling Rogers to get a new phone bill because they don't want to pay ninety eight dollars. You know, but and then it's also the annoying like the annoying stereotype of like like the fully lived life is one where you have seen all the major monuments of modern civilization yeah like you're gonna be on your deathbed and regret that you didn't fucking see the eiffel tower or some bullshit fuck off there's a lot of pressure put on me to wish that i could travel more i'm not phrasing that right but you know what i'm saying you feel pressure to aspire to travel yeah and i do want to be able to explore the world that we live in i do feel like my worldview is pretty narrow and I want to be able to expand it and travel is maybe a shortcut of a way to do that. But there's a lot of pressure on disabled people because of the fact that travel is so highly romanticized and also so inaccessible. Yes. So I totally appreciate your frustration there because it's hard. And I've also been in similar conversations to you where Someone is like, I just don't know if I can do it. What if I want to go skiing on a mountain one day? It's like, okay, just go without me. My buddy um, or a a group of my buddies like went to Thailand uh, just before one of them had their first child. It was like a a last hurrah before the onslaught of uh, responsibility that is parenthood. And I didn't I didn't go uh, because it would be way too fucking stressful. Yeah. And just the prospect of going to the bathroom. You'd constantly be thinking in terms of accessibility. Yeah. The stress would just never end. And it would would inevitably end up on the shoulders of my fellow travelers. Does Thailand have those toilets in the floor? I think so. Yeah. And you, you can't flush toilet paper. Yeah. You'd have to just like. They also uh, quite stereotypically had like had a, a bad experience like they all got food poisoning and it was just absolutely disastrous imagine you getting food poisoning i know it would be it would be the fucking worst oh my it would be an absolute nightmare and i'm so glad i didn't go we we don't have to get too far into that one because that's that's gross i was i was gonna say like my form of escapism and exploration whatever is like sandbox video games and i absolutely love them i love the freedom of movement i love driving i love um the stimulationist element of it like i play a lot of open world video games where you you know grand theft auto the witcher breath of the wild all those games where you're presented with vast open-ended vistas and it's so much fun just to get from point a to point b and to uncover the world and to learn the space in your mind it's so much fun. So I just know that I would really enjoy hiking and I would probably love to travel, yeah. you know, long, long road trips and all that stuff. My dad loves it. So likely I would too. And a lot of this is just like bottled up resentment, whatever, whatever. I still think I've made some pretty good fucking points and I guess we could just leave it at that. But No, I, I do think you've made good points. 
I think it's overly romanticized. And I do think that you're right in that you can never truly know a place just by going there. You can, you have to spend time there. I think there is also value in gaining experience. I think it helps. If anything, it's a shortcut to giving you more perspectives, which can give you more empathy. And I think those are all valuable things as well. Sure. But I don't think you're wrong in at least some of that resentment. I don't think it's misplaced. It's funny because this isn't really like a, a major plot point of the movie that we watched, but it's like one of the few motivations of the characters, like when they're talking about, you know, how they would live outside of the hospital Yeah, that isn't related to just like, oh, I really want to survive my illness. <laughs> Which again, you know, it's it's an easy thing to fantasize about, I think, because the world is so vast, it's easy to just say, uh, I want to go here and... I think that that's going to give me something I'm missing. Or I, it's going to allow me to leave my problems behind. Yeah. That's what I think it is, really. It's the it's the idea of vacating. Yeah. Okay. What do you think about this one, then? I am afraid. You know what someone gets for loving me? They get to pay for all my care. And then they get to watch me die. Ugh. Fucking hate this line. Deductibles, meds, hospital stays, surgeries... When I turn 18, there's no more full coverage. Should I put that on Michael or my family? It's my sickness. It's my problem. Yeah, yeah. Fuck, fuck the movie for reinforcing all that shit. I totally agree. Fuck the movie for it. Reminding everyone how undateable it is when you're disabled. Don't, dis- don't date disabled people because it's expensive. Yeah, and oh, by the way, that character dies like virtually alone in his room. Oh, God. Yeah, yeah. I don't know if I ever thought thought of it like this. Maybe because we, I live in Canada, you know? I don't have to think in terms of deductibles. I think that was a line written for able-bodied viewers. Why? Like they're, they're trying to say, look at what the disabled people have to think about. Look at how hard it is to think about dating with uh, someone with a disability. And they're not wrong, but... Do you need to keep shoving it down our throats? Yeah, virtually every unimaginative wheelie movie does this. Yeah. And it's just because the writer has, because the writer thinks, well, if I had cystic fibrosis, my whole world would be consumed by it, and therefore so would theirs. We should write a movie about being able-bodied where we do all the things that we think being able-bodied is. Like we can jump six feet in the air, we can dunk every basket in basketball. You can like run up and down the stairs, skipping four steps at a time. We would just be making a superhero movie. No, you're talking about like the first scene of the Nutty Professor after um, <laughs> Eddie Murphy becomes skinny. Yeah. Yeah. He Can we do Flubber as a disability movie? Is Flubber assistive technology? No, no, it's just bad CGI. Okay. I don't know. This movie didn't have a lot of substance. It was, the acting was compelling enough to keep watching it. The plot was pretty formulaic, pretty predictable. It ends in a Romeo and Juliet, basically. If I can't live with you, I have to leave. I don't know. I'm not that inspired, to be honest. 
by the end of the film. Yeah. The end of this movie is uninspiring and I don't want to spend too much time on it, but uh, basically it just boils down to exactly what you expect. There's events that are sort of contrived to make you wonder if um, Stella or Will will succumb to their cystic fibrosis. Um, and you don't really, because the romance is unconvincing, there's not really a sense that Stella will lose much by Will's absence or vice versa. So it's, it doesn't really land. I think there should have been more of maybe uh, an emotional or ideological spat between them, like some sort of crisis within the relationship and not just one related strictly to their sickness. Because again, they should be characters that function and fall in love uh, while coping with their illness. Yes. And the way that it intrudes should be um, deprioritized, I think, because otherwise it just feels cheap. It feels like um, a, an illness leveraged for the sake of like artificial dramatic heights. And uh, that's exactly how it comes across. And also they like play three or four different fucking pop songs between um, two or three successive dramatic emergencies. And it it's too much. Like it's paced really poorly. So it was not very good. Yeah, I think you nailed it there with the the idea that the, the romance should be they are in love or developing a romance in spite of or despite their disabilities. Yeah. Rather than that being the only obstacle to overcome. Yeah. Because the movie is already positioning itself at the very beginning as these people are incompatible. Yeah. So So the obstacles that they encounter should be of the romantic variety and not just situationally their illness. Yeah. And I think we touched on that with other movies before where disability seems to be the only thing either keeping people apart or keeping people together. And it's, it's just lazy writing because on the one hand, the movie is arguing that a romance with CF is possible. And yet it's also saying that the romance could not be pursued because of CF. So which which the fuck is it? <laughs> right. It's super hypocritical. And I think, again, I mean, obviously, I don't know. I never know how much research or years, like how many actual people with CF they include in the writing process of these movies or of, of this movie. But it doesn't feel informed enough to be making these kinds of cinematic decisions. It just doesn't feel considerate to me. Yeah, it's lazy. But if you're going to watch it, watch it because Haley is amazing as an actress in it. Mm-hmm. And she deserves to go places. I really hope this is the start to a, a great career for her. Yeah, she makes that good of an impression. You like want to see her in subsequent films. Yeah, she's she's fantastic. I was going to say it's like kind of a Juno caliber performance, but like within a real shitty movie. Okay, so let's play Wheel Breakers. Okay, do you want to go first this time? Yeah, I'll go first, but don't forget the music. Oh, God, I almost thank you. I almost thank you. Wheel Breakers. All right, Tony. So you get to be 100% able-bodied, but every time you make plans with someone you have to conclude the 
interaction with like with the, the plan making discussion with the phrase I look forward to doing this for you. Every interaction. Yep. With every person that I make plans with. Yep. Regardless of the context. <laughs> Absolutely. I'm just trying let me just play out some scenarios. <laughs> I'm like, uh hi, can I get an order for delivery, please? I would like the Pokeball, <laughs> salmon, extra spicy mayo, hold the rice. I look forward to doing this for you. <laughs> yes, exactly. I think that one would go fine because they would just be like, what a weirdo. <laughs> yeah. And then they'd send me my Pokeball. Right. The issue I'm concerned about is people I interact with on a more regular basis. Yeah, exactly. So I'd have to end every podcast in. I look forward to being able to do this for you. No, you're making plans to hang out with them. Oh, so you have to be making plans. Yeah. So does the Pokeball situation even apply? Well, I suppose you're making plans to eat, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> Seems like a stretch. <laughs> well, I suppose you're making plans to release an episode of the podcast. <laughs> so when my parents are coming up, I'll be like, all right, yeah, I'm free on the weekend. Yeah, yeah, you can come up for sure. Remember, uh, you know, I, I work till five on Friday, so I'll be a bit busy if you get here before that, but... Uh, you can stay as long as you want. You know, we'll order some food. We can do these things. I look forward to doing that for you. Yes, that's what you have to do. I think my mom would just think I'm being polite, but maybe not using the right phrasing. <laughs> Let me think of another situation. <laughs> I'm just thinking, like, imagine you really, you know, hit it off with a girl. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you've been talking for quite a while and you finally get to the point where you're about to make plans. And she knows you like her for good reason. And you know you like her for good reason. But then you conclude that plan to meet up for the first time with, I look forward to doing this for you. And then you have to explain it. But you can't say it's in so that you, you know, can remain able-bodied. Right. I get that. Am I allowed to say it any way that I want? No, you have to use the, you have to use that phrase. You have to use the words for you. Yeah, I can use those words, but can I say it with like a funny intonation? I yeah, I guess. Like, but how are you supposed to make that funny? I look fucking forward to doing this for okay, you. Okay, you you be the girl, I'll be the guy, I'll be me. Okay. Hey, yeah. Uh, do you want to meet up this weekend on Saturday? I would love to. Awesome. Okay, yeah, we can go to that restaurant we were talking about, and then maybe afterwards take a little stroll. Uh, I look forward for I look forward to doing this for you. I'm sorry. What do you mean? What's wrong with you? <laughs> What's wrong with you? Oh my god! <laughs> yeah, I don't know how I'd be able to talk myself away from it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. I thought maybe there was a world where it could just be like funny, like a cute false sense of arrogance or something. Oh, maybe, maybe you could play it off, <clears throat> or maybe should be like, oh, well, there's if you're gonna put it that way. There's a lot of things you can do for me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I bet you there'll be some people that would play along. Yeah. Anyone who can do a yes and I think is who I'm into. Yep. If they know you well enough, then any weird turn of phrase they would just assume is like an attempt at humor. Is that something that would make another wheelie laugh or would another wheelie just roll their eyes at you and turn around? And so <laughs> that's a good way to ensure that you're being funny, I suppose. Yeah. All right. Well, okay. So wheel or no, or sorry, no wheel. 
Oh, right. I forgot we were playing Real Breaker. <laughs> but if I decide it doesn't work out, I can just stop doing it and become disabled again. Yeah. Yeah, are you, okay, clarifying, are you clarifying the rules 32 episodes in? Whatever, man. I'm just trying to make sure there's an exit strategy. <laughs> in case it really blows up in your face. All right. So I have a similar one, actually. You get to be able-bodied. Sweet. But every third sentence from here on out that you craft has to end in the phrase, in bed. And so you get to choose what your third sentence is every third sentence. So you can try to make it not weird. That's weird. Why don't you play it out? Hey, Ben, I just need you to commit your changes to the master branch. Uh, Afterwards, make sure to put up a pull request. Also, oh, this is a bad example. Ah, I can't do three sentences. I can't. This is weird. Every third sentence has to end in in bed. All right. So, hey, Ben, uh, just to make sure uh, before you commit your changes to the master bench, create a pull request, um, you know, and I'll code review it afterwards. Um, also, you may want to CC Frank and tell him that uh, the changes are close to uh, ready for deployment. But uh, there's a few more bugs you're going to have to address uh, before the BCAB, before you submit the BCAB in bed. Like, I'm just thinking like work emails will never work. Yeah. I mean, you could just try to be like, hey, just so you know, I'm going to be creating those changes pretty soon. Uh, everything looks good on my end. I might be a little bit late on the deploy just because I'm <laughs> still a bit late to work in bed. <laughs> <laughs> just try to make it as literal as possible every time. Or like you would just limit your interactions with people such that there is never a third sentence. <laughs> just a third sentence. Just start using comma splices all the time. Just run on sentences. Yeah, run on sentences. Yeah, or like, because if they speak to me before the third sentence, then I never have to say in bed. That's a good point. Shouldn't it be any third sentence that you have in a conversation? It doesn't necessarily have to be. Oh, fine. Because that's a smart way to get around it. But that's not very fun. I the, the just the work of having to figure out how to work in the phrase in bed would be way too stressful. Yeah, or you just fully embrace it and you're just it's like a tick that you do. What's a funny version of a sentence where in bed is at the end? I can't even think of one. I mean, like, haven't you ever played that game where you have to stay in bed at the end of every uh fortune cookie phrase? No. Give me an example. Like Good things are in your future in bed. <laughs> that was the most boilerplate example, and it was still funny. <laughs> <laughs> Here, let me let me pull up some fortune cookies, and we'll just start throwing in bed to the end. Of <laughs> oh, content! The love of your life is right in front of you of your eyes in bed. You have a secret admirer in bed. <laughs> Follow what calls you in bed. <laughs> Am I going to laugh every time? Enter unknown territory in bed. <laughs> I am resilient in bed. <laughs> Love yourself hard in bed. Hard. <laughs> <laughs> Make self-care a non-negotiable in bed. <laughs> it's funny every time. It's oh, funny no. every time. <laughs> Next time you order Chinese food, 
get extra fortune cookies and just make everyone say in bed at the end of that. It's a great time. Let's let's use some famous phrases. Here's a Dr. Seuss phrase. You know you're in love when you can't fall asleep because reality is finally better than your dreams in bed. <laughs> that's, that's, <laughs> Here's a good Maya Angelou one. Maya Angelou. <laughs> in all the world, there is no love for you like mine in bed. <laughs> Wait, here's a Frederick Nietzsche quote. <laughs> there is always some madness in love, but there is also always some reason in madness in bed. <laughs> oh my God. Here's another one. Let's see. <laughs> Albert Einstein. Here, you should Google some. It's fun to say it. The woods are lovely, dark, and deep, but I have miles to go before I sleep in bed. <laughs> <laughs> Here's Albert Einstein. Life is like riding a bicycle. To keep your balance, you must keep moving in bed. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's so dumb. I love it. <laughs> Imagination is more important than knowledge in bed. <laughs> <laughs> bed knowledge. <laughs> Coincidence is God's way of remaining anonymous in bed. <laughs> what, what does that mean in bed? <laughs> so, could you take the deal, Jim? I think I would. It sounds hilarious. <laughs> yeah, it's really fun. <laughs> Shall we end it there? Wait, let me, let me find a nice good quote to end it on. Okay. Nelson Mandela once said, a winner is a dreamer who never gives up in bed. <laughs> Goodbye, everyone. Goodbye. <laughs>